Hello and welcome to the Ask Dr. Ben podcast. I'm your host, Ben Johnson. As a holistic-minded physician, I've spent the last 20 years looking outside the box and conducting research to find the true causes of skin conditions and other diseases. And while the focus of my work has been on aesthetic medicine and unlocking the secrets to reversing skin damage, this podcast will also include many other exciting revelations pertaining to you and your family's health and well-being. So let's get started. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Ask Dr. Ben. Appreciate you guys following along in the podcast, and uh, yeah, thank you for listening. Today, I thought we would go over a little bit more on gut health. So in the past podcast, I believe I've discussed uh, the exciting events that are occurring around uh, our recovery supplement, um, and I can briefly cover those as well again. But the main focus for me today was after several months of analyzing the results from people taking recovery to restore their gut microbiome and help heal a variety of conditions that we can talk about as well. I have also seen where people who have been on multiple bottles and done the protocol correctly were reporting gas, bloating, and other symptoms that should be resolved by recovery itself. So, you know, gut health is is really important, not only to your immune system, to your daily joy, right? If you're, every time you eat and you struggle with what you eat, that takes away from your joy. So we want to address that, but it also can show up as a skin problem. As we've discussed, you know, diet, uh, gut health is closely related to acne, to rosacea, eczema, psoriasis, and a host of other conditions. And what I kept coming across was that people were taking supplements that they thought were good for them, but in fact were actually harming their microbiome and or their overall gut health. Some of these you're going to recognize immediately and go, oh yeah, well, I knew that. And some of these might surprise you. So as usual, you know, my focus and my goal with these podcasts is to share with you my research and discoveries because I find oftentimes what I am advocating is uh, quite different than what a lot of physicians might be advocating and yeah, I feel like we are we are uh, you know batting close to a thousand on the strategies that we're employing to help people. And again, you can reach me at Dr. Ben at osmosisbeauty.com if you have health issues that you think we can help, or, or if you'd like to ask me a question, I'm still capable. It's amazing, but true uh, of responding to you in a relatively quick timeline. And I just love the opportunity to help you guys get better because, um, yeah, we need to be uh, during this time um, with all the issues and, and all the viruses circulating. We need to be as healthy as possible and and um, and feel as good about ourselves as possible. And that's really the two main areas where osmosis is making such a big difference. So thank you again. And uh, let's jump right in. So. Just to recap what recovery is designed to do, recovery is a prebiotic, and a prebiotic is different than a probiotic because a prebiotic feeds your gut and encourages your gut to promote healthy bacteria, otherwise known as the probiotic population, also known as your microbiome. So the design of prebiotics is essentially to encourage your gut to create a healthy microbiome. 
where I differ from just about everybody else I know is that I believe your microbiome is DNA generated. In other words, your microbiome is unique to you. It cannot be, I mean, you can alter it by taking probiotics, something I don't believe in. And the reason I don't, and it's on my list, so we can start there. Probiotics are a a lab slash chemist slash doctor's idea of what strain of bacteria they think might be best for you. And they try to do sort of a one size fits all model, right? So they think, hey, I'm going to give you billions of spores and or strains of a specific group of bugs or one bug. And we think this bug's great, so it's got to be good for you. And what I'm telling you is, no, you have a very specific collection of bacteria that your gut naturally wants. This is why your DNA generates it in the first two years of your life. doesn't come from whatever food you eat during those first two years. And so when you take a probiotic supplement, you are most likely attempting to populate the wrong strains into your gut. Sometimes you get lucky and or these probiotics are better than what was in your imbalanced gut and you notice that your digestive symptoms improve. But I notice for a lot of people, they take probiotics just thinking, well, I'm doing good for my gut, not looking into why they also have digestive problems. And they're like, I need to take more probiotics because I have digestive problems. And in a lot of cases, I think these digestive problems are actually being caused by the probiotic. So again, prebiotic feeds your gut bacteria, ideally without a bias. As you've heard me mention before, inulin and sauerkraut and kombucha drinks, I'm not a fan, all are going to promote specific types of strains in your microbiome that are not yours because you're unique. So I don't like prebiotics that uh, predispose you. So inulin causes you to uh, create more lactobacillus than you otherwise would. So there are other prebiotics and they're not all fresh on the top of my head. I generally don't like most of them, but if you've got one that you think might pass the test, you're welcome to send me an email and I can educate myself on that strain and give you my best advice. And so I don't like most prebiotics and recovery is made with the uh, seed, fruit and pulp extracts in a very careful balance of sea buckthorn and also some macadamia nut oil. So that combination with applied frequencies of the golden ratio end up creating a powerful stimulant for the growth of your microbiome. And once your microbiome is back to its original state, believe it or not, your system starts to heal itself. So this is how we go after a lot of the gut issues like SIBO and H. pylori, which I believe are created. And SIBO stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. I believe these bacterial strains that are created are done by foods that we eat and some of the supplements we're going to mention. So we're going to get into those. But yes, uh, if you take our immune defense, two doses for H. pylori, 12 hours apart, two doses, 12 hours apart, and then get on recovery for a month, we've had fantastic success in treating H. pylori without going through all the antibiotics which should also be on this list, and I guess they are. Uh, so I keep cheating down the list early. Apologize for that, but I'm as I'm going along here, just speaking from the top of my head. So obviously, antibiotics not a good thing to be taking for any gut health issue. But uh, 
you know, I do recognize that and uh, certain antibiotics can be effective in treating H. pylori in eh, half the cases. I feel like a lot of cases fail. But it's a long, you know, it's like two to four weeks of antibiotics, depending on whose protocol you're taking. And it's just not the best way to go if you're trying to keep your microbiome healthy. Remember, in that protocol, you are reducing your H. pylori population, but you are also in the same event causing a distortion of your microbiome because you're taking antibiotics. So... What more do I want to say on that? Probiotics, number one on the list. One of the most popular supplements in the world, not something you want to take, and it is something that will slow or interfere with the results of recovery. So uh, the reason why this, this podcast is happening is because I'm finding in a small group of people who are not getting the results they would like, the problem has been supplements that they thought were good for them that were actually not. So number one on the list, probiotics. Another one that I've come across that's interesting, that's also very popular, is magnesium. So I think magnesium's fine. I think it's healthy for you. I think a lot of people benefit from it digestively, and a lot of people benefit from it emotionally. But there are specific types of magnesium I would avoid. One of them is magnesium bisglycinate. Magnesium bisglycinate. Come across other toxins with the bisglycinate component that actually caused melasma. I don't think it was the magnesium. In other words, it causes liver damage and gut damage. But um, at the top of my head, that's in my list of things that cause liver damage and thus melasma. And um, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking if it's magnesium bisglycinate or not, but it's something magnesium bisglycinate can cause a distortion in your microbiome, basically, and it's inflammatory. Also, magnesium silicate. You don't want to be taking that form of magnesium, in my opinion. It also causes a distortion of the microbiome. And lastly, magnesium stearate. And magnesium stearate can be a secret ingredient in your supplements. So you need to go down to the very bottom of your supplement panel and look to see what fillers they're using in your product. And you do not want magnesium stearate in there because it ends up creating this sort of coating on the gut. The stearic acid in particular is known for this and it causes reduced absorption, microbiome changes and uh, bloating and gas and other distortions like that. So that's the basic list of magnesium. Otherwise, I don't really have a problem with magnesium as mentioned. Another really common one are antacids. Um, so, you know, the typical Tums, alkaline, anything alkaline. Honestly, uh, the other one I should mention in that same breath is alkaline water. So I am a huge fan of alkaline water that comes from a natural source. That's actually a really good sign that that water is healthy. And usually that alkalinity is not going above a pH of eight. But what's on the market right now are a ton of alkalinized waters that are made through an ionization process. So the water molecules themselves actually become damaged. And I know that's a concept that people have trouble understanding. They're like, H2O is H2O. But if you are familiar with Dr. Emoto's work and the impact on water molecules that various sources have, I fully subscribe to the concept that water 
is more than just what ingredients are in it. And um, the distortion of water molecules, if that's your source of hydration, remember you're made of 70% water. So distorting water with the ionization process, I believe is harmful to the body. But in addition to that, the alkalinization causes harm. And people who have chronically been on these devices, that they have home devices, you know, they buy that ionize water and they drink their alkaline water because they want to become more alkaline. And what they end up doing is alkalinizing their stomach, which can cause H. pylori, can cause malabsorption. Remember, if you don't break your foods down well, then you are going to be getting more food toxins, right? And incomplete digestive process leads to food toxins entering your small and large intestine. This changes the microbiome. This can create allergies. This can create inflammatory reactions throughout your system if they're absorbed and it increases food allergies. So it's, it's in general, not a good idea. So you want to stay away from alkalinized water. Now, if you're somebody who's like, wait, but I, what about the acidity part? Isn't our body better off more alkaline? Yes, it is true that there's a vast majority of Western diet individuals who run a little bit acidic and alkaline water can give you more energy and make you feel better and maybe help some symptoms that you have. But the problem again is that's not the way to do it because you can't just keep ingesting alkaline water without causing damage to your digestive tract. And so it'll alter the results of recovery and it'll actually ionize water alters the results of the elixirs as well. So you don't want to take any of my elixirs with the frequencies in them while you're also taking ionized water. So not a fan, also not a fan of antacids. You know, when you take an antacid, you are basically shutting down a certain aspect of your ability to digest and that's going to create problems. Along the same lines, when you drink a lot of fluid while you're having a meal, that also dilutes your digestive acids and causes problems to your gut and your microbiome that can also lead to H. pylori. So anything that interferes, obviously medications that are acid reducing medications are damaging your ability to digest food, causing long-term changes to your microbiome. Well, I say long-term, I think they can be corrected, but, and I get it. Like there's some people with some really serious acid reflux damage to their esophageal sphincter. There's a condition called Barrett's esophagus, which is really serious, but you know, try to address this before you get there. Remember the osmosis skin mapping will tell you if you have redness or capillaries on the sides of your nose, and let's just start with redness on the sides of your nose, then you are suffering from acid reflux. And about a third of people don't feel pain from it. And they might notice maybe a taste of acidity in their mouth or something else that gives them a clue, but pay attention to your nose. It's a nice tell. Now, if you're someone who has capillaries on the sides of your nose, that means that your acid reflux damage has gone to, you know, level two, let's say. And um, that's something, that's when you need to give it serious consideration. And then if you have redness around the sides of your nostrils and at the below your nostrils, but not on your nostrils themselves, then you likely have H. pylori, as my skin mapping has shown. And again, this is 20 years of me just tracking symptoms and pathology with medical histories and images from my clients. So I've had kind of a unique perspective in my uh, accrual of data to get to this place that I'm at. And I feel hugely confident that I've got this figured out as far as skin mapping goes. And now I'm feeling hugely confident that I can resolve just about anyone's issues. So uh, again, you know, you're welcome to reach out to me or reach out to the physicians and estheticians that work with our protocols. 
But again, you want to stay away from those things. It's might see counterintuitive. Like a lot of people think acid is their problem. What really is the problem is not necessarily high acid production, although that can occur. It's typically what I find is it's actually your pancreatic enzymes that are diminished. And as a result, it's taking longer for you to digest food. It's also what we spoke about earlier. When you have diluted acid because you're drinking while you're eating dinner, then that can also lead to prolonged churning of the food. And that prolonged churning ends up causing acid damage. So there is a combination of those two. I think more often than not, there is an elevated level of acid production, but there are also people who struggle who have low acid production. So I don't want to leave them out. I'm just not there's not really a supplement. I, I almost never recommend hydrochloric acid as a supplement for somebody to improve their digestion. I give them our digestive support, which is our uh, really power-packed combination of digestive enzymes. And um, it's really been helpful for people. So digestive support's a good go-to that, and, and it helps reduce your acid production. So we do put people on recovery. We put people on digestive support for what's called GERD or gastroesophageal reflux disease and or acid reflux as it's colloquially known. Next on my list here is the category of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. So the ones you're most familiar with are aspirin and ibuprofen, but all that list of the newer versions of those are called NSAIDs. Most physicians refer to them as NSAIDs or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, and all of them cause damage to your stomach in particular, but also your entire microbiome. And um, Tylenol doesn't, but Tylenol has its own impact on your liver and uh, I think is associated with liver spots, but... uh, you know, that's not been studied from what I can tell. So yeah, I get it if you're in pain. And these are what are keeping you uh, happy and less in, in pain. It's a very tough decision to make. They're also very well known for causing kidney damage, not just stomach damage. And um, so you'll see that in your lower lids. So typically people who are on aspirin or ibuprofen or the similar ones are uh, seeing a puffy lower eyelid on their face. So your skin and your face, I'm telling you, are really good at at tracking and giving you information about whether or not you're on the right protocols. Next on the list is proteins. So a lot of people are taking protein supplements these days, and I get asked a lot which proteins to avoid. I can tell you the number one protein to avoid, uh, mainly because it causes acne that leads people to do things like get on antibiotics or Accutane. They're like, I can't get this under control. And the whole time it was coming from pea protein. So where does pea protein cause acne? It causes it j- just outside of your chin, basically. So if you were to put your finger on your chin and move sideways by about an inch to two inches, that region of your of your face, uh, not above your mouth line, this would be like a, basically an inch above your jawbone within that range. So your jawbone to an inch above it and about an inch to two inches to the side of your center chin, if you can picture that. Or you can go to osmosisbeauty.com and look at our skin map and it'll help you guide you as to exactly where that shows up. But it's it's not the protein itself that causes acne. It is the preservative that they're using in the manufacturing of pre-protein that seems to be the main cause 
Now, I found it in every pre-protein, so I don't know if there's a preservative naturally found in peas, but I don't think so. It doesn't happen when you eat peas, by the way. It's pea protein. And so many people think that's the healthy choice for protein. And so I'm here to tell you, if you're getting a lot of acne that just is so stubborn, you can't get rid of it. First of all, you take osmosis skin defense because we bind up pea protein in that capsule. So you take two to three caps a day once a day, and it helps bind up those toxins that come out as um, acne in the skin. Remember, I believe acne is a toxin purge, not a bacterial infection. And so, I mean, there can't be much better proof than pea protein because, you know, when I, uh, when I, when I get these cases and every day I'm working on, uh, you know, cases for my esthetician and doctor accounts, I always, it's crazy to me when I, uh, when you get that pea protein moment, that aha moment, they're like, oh my God, this whole time that was the cause. Oh, and you know, it's uh, so it's a bit of a painful moment. I don't know why. I don't know why again that they do that. Cause I don't see other proteins causing acne generally, although indirectly they do, which leads me to my next topic, which is casein protein, casein protein from milk is a mucus forming inflammatory form of protein. It will cause, and mute, once you get a buildup of mucus, you're much more likely to have candida acne and can, and or rosacea, by the way, rosacea and acne, both associated with taking too much casein protein. And, you know, we don't talk enough about mucus in the medical industry, but we've got the only mucus cleanse in the world that I know of. It's called skin clarifier. So if you develop excess mucus and are getting acne from it or or bloating and gas and other digestive problems, then, you know, obviously you're going to want to stop taking casein protein and you're also going to want to take skin clarifier one, two, three rounds. Each round is a 10 day cleanse. Also similar category is whey protein, not a fan. Uh, that's another one you should avoid. Uh, it also is inflammatory to the gut, changes the microbiome, causes mucus formation, which again can lead to rosacea and candida. Soy protein is last on the list for me as the big no-no proteins. I might be missing some that are less popular that are out there that are bad, but basically this is the summary. Now, soy protein does not cause mucus. It does not. I'm not worried about the estrogen aspect of soy because I don't think of it as an estrogen toxin. It's just, it's a phytoestrogen. So it's it's not great in someone who is actually estrogen toxic, obviously, but I don't really think it has a lot of harm in that category as a phytoestrogen. I think it gets a little more hate than it needs in that category. However, um, it should get hate because all soy protein is GMO soy. And uh, GMO soy does have a negative effect on the microbiome and the human body overall. I'm not a fan. I generally try to avoid soy unless it's organic, non-GMO soy, in which case I think it's fine. So good luck finding that. <laughs> it's not easy to do, but those are the proteins. So, you know, if you're like a bone broth protein person, I'm fine with that. Some people are taking collagen protein supplements. I it's just not the most efficient way for the dollar to get your protein, in my opinion. So in the vegan category of protein, uh, I should have looked something up to remind myself which, which areas of protein I would recommend for vegans. But you've heard my no-no list, so if there's some that you're like, oh, of course, those are the go-to vegans, and I haven't mentioned it, you're probably safe. Alrighty, uh, moving on to the next digestive issue category of supplementation that I think alters gut health and or skin health and or overall immune health, megadosing antioxidants. 
And this is every category. Like I'm a fan of glutathione, but not megadosing it. I'm a fan of vitamin C and vitamin E, but not megadosing it. Resveratrol, same thing, doesn't matter. Pick your antioxidant of choice. You may have been convinced to get this powerful combination of megadosing of these antioxidants. I am not a fan. We do have CoQ10 in our collagen activator, which is really good for increasing the production of ATP in the body. That's at a dose that I think is fine. Again, just be careful about the, you know, at, at no time. And, and a lot of people say, oh yeah, if you really want to help your viral health or, or you really, uh, oh, here's a great one. A lot of people believe that free radicals are the cause of aging. I do not subscribe to that theory. It is absolutely true that if you're a smoker, or less so a drinker, but there are, uh, you know, if you've done chemotherapy, like the free radicals that are formed from really toxic events and or chronic toxic behavior like smoking are going to cause aging in certain cells, in certain components of the body. And so that is absolutely true. But in general, leading a normal life, free radicals, I don't believe are the main cause of aging. It's toxicity and emotions, which are a huge aspect of aging, believe it or not. And antioxidants are not the strategy for that. Like the strategy is to address your emotional imbalance. The strategy is, of course, to minimize exposure to chemotherapy, you know, minimize exposure to, like I wouldn't take hydrogen peroxide orally because that's damaging to the microbiome. That's going to cause free radicals. I know a lot of people love apple cider vinegar um, and take it daily. I don't believe that that is healthy for your microbiome. It's, it's definitely not healthy for your microbiome, but the reason why people found some success with it is because it's not bad as a candida treatment. So you don't need that. You could use osmosis skin perfection for your candida and or also include our skin clarifier mucus cleanse because that's a big one to help clear candida. So we usually do those in combination. But apple cider vinegar and the acetic acid, they're, they're toxic to you. So it's not ideal. Same thing with hydrogen peroxide, the free radicals, the, the, the instant damage to the microbiome, not, not good for you. So these are things you want to avoid for your gut health, and it'll uh, prevent, again, recovery from doing its job if you're on them. What else do I have on the list? So let's finish off with non-organic foods. Um, why do you want to worry about non-organic foods? Because they bleach all the chicken if it's not organic. They put bleach in fish if it's not organic. And uh, of course, uh, non-organic foods oftentimes have a load of antibiotics and, and animal hormones that distort the body. But more importantly for this conversation, distort the microbiome and your immune health. So you definitely want to try to eat organic whenever possible. Also want to mention tap water since it's so full of bleach and just about every community out there, all Western civilizations seem to have signed off on the idea that we should add bleach to our water when it's one of the worst things you can do for your digestive health. I mean, look up and you might say, wait, wait, I thought they just added chlorine. Chlorine is bleach. When they say chlorine, they're talking about a chlorine oxygen molecule. They're not talking about chloride. They're not talking about chlorine uh, that is, doesn't have an oxygen associated with it. It's always bleach in my experience. So Berkey filter is really good to have around the house if, if tap water is your go-to source for budget or other reasons. And um, yeah, so that's really important because that'll kill away your microbiome and reduce the results of recovery. 
And the last one I'll just put on the list of common supplements that I recommend not taking is lutein. Lutein does have a negative effect, in my opinion, on the microbiome. It's shown to increase skin cancer rates. I think it has an immune effect. I'm not exactly sure how it's impacting the microbiome, but I'm not a fan. It's some, a lot of people take it for eye health, but I would say don't do it. It's a net negative for the system and for the microbiome. So that's the summary list. I may have forgotten a few things. I tried to stay focused on the pills that I think are most commonly ingested. If I didn't mention them and, and they're in that category of common, then you can feel comfortable that those are going to be fine. Now, I do generally believe that my multivitamins are mostly a waste of money. I should mention that if you're doing taking mineral supplementation, uh, you could be at risk for uh, fungal exposure because a lot of these minerals do contain fungi. And that can cause a microbiome damage. And now as I'm saying that, I'm also remembering that the cheeses with mold, visible mold on them. Uh, yes, all you crazy folks out there who love the cheese with things growing on it. That is bad for you. That is, I'm, I'm finding several people whose uh, skin fungal condition, skin shows up as rashes on your body. So if you're someone who has rashes on multiple extremities and or your torso, Chances are you have a mold infection in your system, in your growing, in your gut. Uh, we do treat that with two doses of immune defense, 12 hours apart, but you need to stop ingesting mold in your foods. And occasionally I'll see babies who are being given alternative milk powder and the milk powder has some mold in it. So you got to be careful of that. But I think that covers it today. And I apologize. I'm not cranking out my podcast weekly like I was. I'm going to try to get back to that routine. And so hopefully this was helpful to you today. Remember, recovery, one tablespoon a day for three months for most people and four months for people with significant bowel conditions is amazing for gut health. You will see those changes. And if you're looking to see the changes on your face, say for rosacea and or the capillaries on the sides of the nose that are caused by acid reflux, after you complete, say, the, the four months of the recovery, give it a month or two to see if the healing then progresses from there. Because sometimes it, it takes a month or two after recovery, you may find the healing still continues. And then, of course, the amazing aspect of recovery that is getting a ton of attention, and, and it should, is the fact that if you take a tablespoon twice a day, it restores the volume in your facial and body fat pads, not your subcutaneous loose fat. I'm talking about the intramuscular structural fat that is the youthful fat that keeps your skin from being crepey around your knees or crepier in your arms, like in your biceps and triceps. You notice like, wait, where is all, what, why is this so loose and, and, and wrinkly? It has to do uh, in a lot of cases, not just with loss of muscle, but loss of your fat pad volume and recovery does that exceptionally well. Um, so I think, uh, I think I'm going to call it there guys. We'll see you hopefully in a week, if not for sure in two weeks. Thanks again. Talk to you soon. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Ask Dr. Ben. Please leave a review if you can and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts to get access to all of my upcoming episodes. My website is osmosisbeauty.com and you can find me on Facebook at osmosisbeauty. You can also follow me on Instagram at osmosis underscore beauty. Thanks for listening.